Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. So we are going through the book of Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible. Um, Fear not tomorrow, tomorrow has already been won, is really the message that's coming out through uh, the book of Revelation. But as we uh, get to today, let me ask you this question, do you ever have doubts as a follower of Jesus Christ? Do you have those thoughts that creep into your mind and, and say to you, I'm not sure this Jesus stuff is real? Do you have those doubts that sort of come across your mind sometimes? Or what about when you come to the book of Revelation and you read this with all of its mystery and its complexity? Does that build your confidence or does that actually maybe create a bit of confusion? Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet and you've heard about this perhaps weird stuff in the back of the book, the Bible, the book of Revelation. And you might be asking yourself, what's all that about? When Ola read chapter 8 there before Revelation, you thought, that sounds pretty far out. Well, today, come with me as we take into a dive into some really mysterious writing from John who wrote the book of Revelation, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So turn with your Bibles now. We're going to go to chapter 9. Uh, today, we are going to be doing both chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9. We're going to read now from chapter 9, verse 12 through to 21. So starting at verse 12. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the colour of fire and of sapphire and of sulphur and of the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulphur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulphur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of of them they wound. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Lord, thank you. Thank you now that we can come and open up these chapters and read them. This is your inspired word. God, you have given this to us to understand something of you. We ask Holy Spirit now, as we work through this really strange language, that you'll help us to see it with somewhat plainness so we can understand it and uh, worship you through that. We ask for your help now, Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, if you haven't worked it out by now, Revelation seems unbelievable when you read chapters like these. Uh, you might be asking, is this like a J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings sequel that we're seeing written out here in the book of Revelation? Or is it a, is it a Marvel movie set, set in the 20th century where aliens are, being, are invading the earth and it's the end of the world? Is this really the Bible when you see things like that? Well, these chapters here, chapters 8, chapters 9, and there's more to come as well in the, in the oncoming weeks, uh, they are thick. They are thick with what we call apocalyptic literature and language. Uh, the images that we see there uh, are described are out of this world if we were to take them in a literal sense. You just, well, these just defy our imagination. Am I? We don't see those sort of things, you know, riding around the countryside of Australia. Yeah, fire raining from the heavens, a, a burning mountain, as I'll read before, being thrown into the sea and, and plagues of locusts tormenting people. Pretty unbelievable stuff. Apocalypse, the word there means revealing or revelation. In this particular sense, it's a revealing of the end of the world. And the language that it uses in this apocalypse or this apocalyptic language is highly symbolic. It's really symbolic and it's dramatic. It's to convey to us a really heightened sense of what is happening. It's not using plain, everyday, ordinary language. It's trying to really convey a heightened sense of what's actually taking place here in this revelation of the end of the world. So this is apocalyptic language. Probably the closest we come to apocalyptic is in our Western cultures, maybe going to see a Star Wars movie or something like that where you see those weird and wonderful creatures and there's a plot line where the empire is going to take over the world and the known world is going to be killed. That maybe is the closest we get. It's just not a common expression, apocalyptic language, that we use in 2022. It's just not common. Last week, we saw the seven seals of judgment that the martyred saints had prayed would be open. They were praying there, open these seven seals of judgment, and the lame that was slain was the only one that could open these seven seals. Uh, And we saw those judgments last week as we unpacked that as occurring in the earth right now. It's happening today in various forms. But then in fact, the seventh seal of those seven seals, Revelation gets a bit sort of intertwined at times, isn't opened until the start of chapter 8 where we saw, I'll read that before. And then with the opening of the seventh seal, there is this stunning silence in heaven for half an hour. It just goes dead silent, an awe-filled silence that takes place there. And then what John sees next in his vision which doesn't mean it happens next in a chronological order. It's just what John happens to see next because we understand also that Revelation is not written in a chronological order. What John sees next is seven angels that are given, uh, from, who stand before God are given seven trumpets. And then another angel takes some incense. We're talking now at the start of chapter 8. Another angel takes some incense, which is added to the prayers of the saints who have been martyred with some fire from the altar. This is all this sort of dramatic imagery that's kicking in here. And then this is cast down to the earth. And this is all accompanied by thunder and lightning and an earthquake. It's really setting the scene here in a very dramatic and symbolic way, indicating God's judgment upon sinful humanity. This is his judgment upon the world for rejecting him. Now, as we think about these seals, and this is just, um, again, we're going to cover a lot of 
the Bible between Revelation 8 and 9, so you really want to keep your Bibles open or your phones on the Bible and not on social media apps or anything like that. Now, I don't believe that this is an entirely different judgment to the seven seals we saw last week. You might be saying, Todd, but they were seven seals. This is seven trumpets. The two are actually linked together. I think what it is, it's another viewpoint of this judgment, of God's judgment, seeing it from another perspective. So it might be seeing the seven seals from one perspective and the seven trumpets are seeing the judgment from another perspective. Why I say that is this, it's because the earth continues on in its day-to-day course while these seven trumpets of judgment are happening. There are both believers and unbelievers on the earth during this time. And we can see that in Revelation 9-4. We won't show this now, we'll come back to it later, because in that you'll see there's a torment, which we'll explain that shortly, only for those who aren't sealed by God at this time, which must mean there are some people on the earth who are sealed by God. So there's both believers and unbelievers here on the earth at this time. So it's really, the earth is still going through its motions, even though it's under God's judgment at this time. And again, remembering, uh, we said that John often circles back to similar themes here in Revelation. He comes back to this judgment scene three times. We're going to see uh, seven bowls of judgment in a few weeks' time as well. So putting that together, uh, when are we we seeing these trumpets happening? Well, again, I believe these trumpets of judgment are taking place now, between the time of Christ's resurrection and his second coming again. But let me add just one little extra bit to that. Yes, I believe they're coming now. And the little bit I'll add is this. I believe that these judgments will have an increased an increased intensity as we get closer to Jesus' second coming. The drama of it all, in the real-time sense, I believe will increase as we get closer uh, to Christ's second coming. As we get nearer to Christ's coming, uh, the days of this world will grow darker and darker and the opposition and pushback against Jesus and his, and his followers will increase, the Bible tells it. So therefore, I believe the judgments we're experiencing now will increase in their intensity as we get closer to the second coming of Christ. Here's our big idea for today. You think that's a long introduction you've gone through there, Todd. Here's our big idea for today. God is sovereign and just. He ordains these judgments because of people's sinful, hard hearts. A little bit similar to last week, but we are going to see it from a different perspective as well. Firstly, these first four trumpets, it seems to be God afflicting blows upon the hopes that we humans see as fixed and constant in the world that we live in. They're like blows or judgments that God makes against the earth and the universe around about us here, particularly in these first four trumpets that we see there. Now understand here again also that God and his sovereignty is the one who's ordaining these things to take place. This is not under Satan's authority or somebody else's authority. This is all under God's ultimate authority, ordaining these things to take place. As we saw back a few weeks ago, God sits on the throne. Revelation 4 is all about that. John, really important to get that up front. God sits on the throne. He controls everything. He rules everything in his sovereign supremacy and everything done is according to his purposes and his will. Anyway, let's get back to it. In many ways, we see the world around about us 
in a fixed and constant order. We all have sort of the seven-day rhythms or routines we have, but if you look at this earth, you actually see constancy in many respects. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. If you go to the beach, one wave rolls in and then another wave rolls in. You see these fixed order things that keep happening. You plant a seed and a crop grows. The rain falls upon the earth and it fills up our rivers and flows into the reservoirs and gives us drinking water. There there are these fixed order of things that we just believe are always going to be there. It's just that constancy of life. These things are just there. But here's what these trumpets are dealing with. First trumpet is in verse 7. The earth itself, under this judgment of God, bears some sort of disorder through vegetation and food crops being destroyed. It says there in 7, burnt up. So there's going to be some sort of destruction here or some sort of disorder upon the crops of the world. Second trumpet in verses 8 and 9, it's the seas and the oceans are now disordered by God. Instead of being calm and serene, we're going to have storms where people are killed in ships. Happening today. I mean, you can, I was reading uh, part of George Whitfield's biography yesterday. He set off on sail on a boat. When he left the River Thames, it was just really calm and he got near somewhere out in the Atlantic Ocean and now this storm whipped up and they just feared for their life. You just go from calm seas to ferocious seas and people die. And that one there, a third of the fish are dying. I mean, even now we see untold things that take place where these fish just wash up on beaches dead. Another thing that God afflicts upon the constant hopes that we have in this world. Third trumpet in verses 10 and 11, water supplies are disordered. God's judgment is upon that. Instead of this beautiful, sweet mountain water filling our cup, there's this bitter, poisonous water bringing death to people. And that can happen around the world from time to time. Some water can be unsafe to drink and people die. That's an evidence of God's judgment actually already occurring in the earth today. Fourth trumpet, uh, we see there that the cosmos is disordered. Instead of the stars being our dependable navigational aids, somehow there's going to be a disruption to the light that they all give. There's a darkness to someone that comes over uh, the world. Uh, a third of that light will be cut back. Now, Gary, I'm not sure that's going to go for your solar business, perhaps in in years to come. Maybe the solar panels may not work so well, I'm not sure. But there's something, it says there that, you know, there's going to be this sort of um, breaking down of the light that we are just so used to. Now, we do get solar eclipses from time to time, but there's a sign there of the things that are constant, that God is going to disrupt these things or disorder these things. Now, we've just briefly gone over that, but I mean, if you look at what John says, it's this highly graphic imagery here that he talks about in this way. And a lot of it, if you were to think about it, is shaped very much along the lines of the plagues that Moses uh, was a part of against the nation of Egypt. If you go back to some of those plagues and look at what's happening there, you'll actually see some of those things line up. Again, this is John bringing Old Testament imagery into the book of Revelation. Again, they were God's judgments on the uh, land of Egypt back then. Now, you may be asking the question, could this be literal what John's saying? Could there be a burning mountain that lands in the ocean? And could, could these things happen? Well, nobody's got a firm 100% understanding of the book of Revelation. Possibly it could happen, literally. But I think unlikely, 
unlikely, given we're dealing with this apocalyptic literature here. It's just different the way it describes things. So I don't think so. I think more so it's symbolic. But John's point here, through this, uh, these four trumpet judgment, there's a, a disruption to the natural order of things. The things that we depend on, the things that we delight in so much will be disrupted. In, in some ways, catastrophically disrupted. Uh, we see that through tsunamis on beaches. People love to go to the beach and enjoy the waves, but not a wave that comes through at 15 metres high and just flows about five kilometres in, inland. There's a disruption to the ordered um, things that we're normally putting our constancy in. God, in his sovereignty, will bring judgment upon the natural order of the earth and the universe around about us. Okay, it takes a bit of a change now. Uh, then in chapter 8, verse 13, we have this eagle that's flying around, overhead calling out, whoa, 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 for the remaining blasts of the trumpets that are coming. What we see next as we read through this is God's judgment allowing torment to come upon those who aren't sealed by God. Let's have a look in chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, what we spoke about before, being both the unbelievers and believers on the earth at that time. Verse 5, and they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. What does that mean? Again, we're dealing with the thick of apocalyptic literature and language here. Highly dramatic, symbolic to heighten the intensity of what's taking place here. I think it means this. The locusts are demonic spirits that are given the ability to go out and torment the people on the earth in a psychological or mental sense. For those who've rejected the gospel, for those who aren't sealed by God, who, for those who want nothing to do with God. I think those locusts are demonic spirits. You might say, well, how did you land there, Todd? How did you get to that point? Well, where do these locusts come from? It says there in the passage we just read, from the bottomless pit. If we think about the bottomless pit, what is that synonymous with? That's synonymous with hell. What comes from hell? Well, we know what comes from hell is like demonic activity comes from hell. And if you flick over to verse 11, you actually see here that the locusts have a king. John says, the king of these locusts is Apollyon, or known as Satan. So when you begin to put those things together, you actually see this is some sort of de demonic activity taking place here. Now, if you're thinking, Todd, you're out in a limb all on your own in that sort of surmising, all the commentaries that I read this week to help me actually 
sort of, you know, uh, bring my thoughts together. All the commentaries I read concurred with the very same idea that they believe that these are demonic spirits allowed to go out into the world and to inflict this torment on those who've rejected Jesus, who've rejected the gospel and walked away from him. They're allowed by God as his judgment upon humans to inflict some type of mental torment upon them. In verse 6 of chapter 9, we can see there that this psychological or mental torment that is happening there is so bad that people seek death, but they can't do it. In other words, it is so distressing and tormenting for them, and meanwhile they're still rejecting God at the same time, it is so tormenting and distressing for them that they actually want to commit suicide to escape this torment and they won't be able to do that. That's what it says there in verse 6. It tells us in verse 5, just prior to that though, this torment will only be for a season. It says there five months. Well, in other words, that's a determined season, a determined period of time when God will allow this judgment to come out in its heightened way. Again, we're thinking of the imagery that John is using here. Um, this is, it's going to be for a set season where this will take place. Verses 7 and 10, if we follow that on, again, we're seeing the, the very thick part of uh, apocalyptic literature. There's highly graphic images here to intensify the nastiness of this demonic oppression. He's yeah, using this graphic language here to say this is not child's play. This is intense stuff. Now, I've only had a very small amount to do with demonic activity in my life in the sense of seeing other people possessed by demons or seeing demonic activity take place. It's not nice. It's very horrible. And to think that the part of God's judgment will allow people who've rejected him to begin to somehow experience that torment will not be pretty at all. But again... This is God's sovereign and just judgment against a sinful humanity who have rejected him and want no part of him. He'll allow a season of terror, as it were, through demonic oppression for people to experience what it's really like to be under Satan's domain. If you're going to reject me, says God, well then, okay, you'll know what it's like to live under Satan's domain and experience that torment, what it's really like. You don't want me? That's what you want? Well, then you'll experience that. It won't be pretty. It'll be very, very ugly indeed. You'll want to escape it, and you just can't. That's what God's Word tells us there. Verse 13 to 19, we see this sixth trumpet blown. And again, we see more demonic activity, but ramped up to a new level of terror and intensity. Four angels in verse 14, which we believe are fallen because they're demonic spirits that have been put under lock and key. They're held back, they're bound until this particular point in time, whenever that might be in the, in the future. And then they're released to do their wicked, wicked work. Again, in line with the plague of locusts, it's actually an innumerable number of this wicked host. It, does, it gives that number there of t- twice 10,000 times 10,000. That, If you do your maths quickly, that's 200 million. But in apocalyptic language, this is saying it's an uncountable host. It's an immeasurable host. It's an unlimited number here that go out and, and do carry out uh, this torment. 
But not only can they torment people at that time, it says there they're also given the power to kill them. Have a look in verse 15. It says to kill a third of mankind. Now we're certainly not seeing that, I don't believe, now. But there's some sort of intensity coming in the future where we will see something way more dramatic like that. Verses 17 and 19, again, we saw that graphic image there of the ferocity of these demons carrying out their business of stealing, killing and destroying humans. John uses this language of horses and breastplates and fire and sulphur. It's just trying to really heighten the intensity of how bad this really is. They're evil spirits. They delight in inflicting pain. They delight in suffering and they delight in death. Like I said, we see some of that now, but we'll see a large increase prior to the times of when Jesus returns. Some of that now, I reckon we do see, obviously, some demonic activity amongst people. Now, what's a a crime show with um, Laurel last Sunday? Uh, We saw this guy called Pee Wee Gaskin. Did anybody watch that last week? No, so no one will... You might, you might be able to fact check me. He killed more than 100 people in the USA during the 1950s. I think that's unbelievable. When he was on death row in prison, he still killed somebody in the cell next door to him. He pulled the grates off, got some gel ignite um, smuggled into the prison, pushed it through the grates, hooked up a tripwire, and when the bloke went to grab the parcel, he just... and killed his mate next door. Well, not his mate, but... I look at that and I think... That's got to be demonically inspired to kill that many people and just keep doing it even when you're on death row and you killed somebody next door to you. It's got to be demonically inspired. These are part of God's judgments upon a world that has rejected him again. Why is this happening? Because we reject God. We say, no, we don't want you, God. We want to live life our way on our terms. None of that's pretty. I don't take joy and delight in actually talking about that. But again, that's Revelations 8 and Revelations 9. It's there for us. It's there to actually help us understand what's happening and help us understand what's coming. It's actually there for us for a warning. It should actually take a bit of our breath away. It should actually stop us in our tracks a bit. Well, it should. But look what happens next. It's jaw-dropping what takes place next. Have a look in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. Unbelievers are still shaking their fists at God despite all of this happening. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Can you believe that? After all they've experienced, some have got through these plagues, because it says that the ones that weren't killed by the plagues, some have got through. They didn't repent. They didn't change their mind about life. They actually kept doing what they've always wanted to do. This is a picture of the blinding power of sin. It blinds us to the goodness of God. It's actually a picture of the heart-hardening pair of sin. They go through all that judgment and their hearts come out harder. 
somehow some people manage to get through this horrendous time with God's judgments, being clearly known, they've seen all this take place, people dying, and they still want to give God the one finger salute. They want to say, up yours God. That's literally what they're saying here in verses 20 and 21. Can you believe that? It just shows the depravity here of the human heart when it walks away from God. The very things that are part of this self-centered life that they choose to live and these things that they're addicted to and they won't give up, they just keep doing all these things in the face of God's judgment. You sit there dumbstruck if you actually begin to weigh all that up. How could you? Why would you? In these verses, we actually see people still running after the same broken, empty strivings they've been going for all their life, and they keep going after it again and going after it again. And here's what Scott Javal said about this in a commentary through the week. He says, The great tragedy of human depravity is that people rush, people rush after the very things that will eventually destroy them. The essence of sin is seeking to live independently of God. Even though they know these things are going to destroy them, they just keep rushing after them. This is the blinding power of sin. This is the blinding, heart-hardening power of sin as well. It just blinds us to the goodness and the glory of God. Human sinfulness is devastating. We don't see the, the devastation it brings upon the human person and its corruption, which highlights that salvation is truly a miracle that God does and God does alone. Only he, only he can rescue us from this profound hard-heartedness or blindness before him. It's a miracle what he does when he opens our eyes up to see the beauty and the wonder of God. Right, what are we to make then of chapters, chapters 8, chapters 9 as we think about all that? Now, we see there in the last part, people walking the same old broken treadmill of life, chasing that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow but discovering a rusty old bucket full of holes. And what do they do? They just chase the next rainbow and they find the next rusty bucket full of holes. And then we read this sort of weird language here describing God's judgment. What are we to make of that? Look, let's think about perhaps where some of John's hearers were. I'm sure the persecution that these guys were under, because they were under a lot of persecution at the time, probably had a lot of doubts about their faith probably had a lot of doubts about really what was taking place around the world at the time. They might be thinking to themselves, is this really true God? Are you really true God? Did Jesus really die for my sins? Was that, was that the payment for it? Is this what I truly believe when I see this world sort of going on around about me? Or have I bought into a lie? Am I just going up the wrong path here? John, as they read this, they're going to say, John, are you for real about these seven trumpets of judgment? Is is this true? Or is this just a big story you've made up, John? You can imagine these doubts beginning to perhaps roll around their mind, plus they're under this persecution of the time. Well, firstly, let's acknowledge doubts are real things in the Christian life. Don't think something's wrong with you if you don't have some doubts that come into your mind from time to time. That's part of the normal Christian life that we live. It's a world that's still broken and these doubts are a part of that. And if I think about that, I think about a number of well-known people over the last few years who've gone through what we call a deconversion or a deconstruction of their faith. 
In other words, uh, these doubts have come and they've actually walked away from God. And sometimes, maybe it's something like Revelation. They might get to this book of Revelation and say, God's judgment? And they see that and they said, nah, that's it, that's done it for me. That's the straw that breaks the camel's back because I just can't get my head around this at all. I just can't see what's going on here. And if you think about those people that have gone through a deconstruction or a deconversion in their life, as I've read this story at times, they'll get to a pressure point in their life, a crisis point in their life, where this doubt begins to creep into their minds and they begin to question everything about their faith and perhaps particularly something like the book of Revelation and God's judgment. And what do they do? Unfortunately, some of them walk away from God and they just live for themselves again. Everybody, everybody's got to have a belief system whether they admit it or not. Everybody believes in something. You cannot say to me, I don't believe in anything. Well, then that's what you believe in. You believe in nothing. You believe at the end of this life, there is nothing. That's what some people believe. This life is pointless and meaningless and there's just nothing. Or others may believe this, that there's some sort of good person up there who assesses everything we've done and if I've done enough good things then maybe I'll get into a happy place that's a common thought for some people I just yeah there's got to be something else but you know a good person will see how good I am and let me in but every belief structure every belief structure or system around the world outside of God so not in God outside of God falls over with what to do with evil how do we deal with that how do we explain that they can't explain it they can't fix it or they can't deal justly with it with any belief structure outside of who God is. Every belief system fails to tell us the core of evil. Where does it come from? They'll say it's influences from your life. That, that's what makes you evil. Well, they can be influences, but it's not the core. They can't tell us what the core of evil is. Every belief system fails to fix it up permanently, fix up evil permanently within us. It can put band-aids on and often those band-aids is uh, more laws or more education or more laws, more punishment, more education. That's the only way they deal with evil. Or every belief system fails to deal justly with evil because it can't find the perfect standard by which to judge it by. What uh, A law might be accepted in this country but in another country you can do whatever you like in some of those areas because they can't find the perfect standard to actually deal with evil properly. There's only one way, there's only one way to make sense of this world. It's through the lens of God. There is no other way to make sense of this world other than the lens of God. God perfectly describes evil. He says it's the centre of our human heart. It comes from the broken, corrupted, faulty heart that we have within us. Jesus says out of the heart flow the issues of life. It's out of the inner person. That's what's broken. God knows exactly how to repair evil permanently. He gives us a new heart when we're born again. He knows how to repair us. And God knows exactly how to deal justly with evil as well. God perfectly meets out the punishment for the crimes that are committed. So when I think about Revelation 8 and 9, it relieves my doubts. It doesn't cause me doubts. I may not fully understand every single thing that's happening here. No one ever will. But I see a good God working in a just way so that evil is dealt with properly. 
it doesn't give me more doubts, it relieves my doubts as I see a good God working this way. Because here, here are people who are hell-bent on thumbing their nose towards God and after all the mild judgments and perhaps some of the more severe judgments are given to them as wake-up calls, they sort of respond with, well, I got away, this time you won't catch me, God. I said, well, God, you've got to do something and he does. He brings his justice to, the, to bear. I look at that and I say, well, God is the only one who can make sense of this life as I look at Revelation 8 and 9. Because if it's not God, well, what alternative will I choose that I'm going to put my belief system into? And will it stack up? Will it actually answer all the human heart questions? And if you get honest about that, as I said before, you will not be able to answer all those questions. It's only God who makes sense of this world. And it's only God who can answer all those questions for us. And here's God's grace working through Revelation 8 and 9. God's revealing himself to us through these chapters. God has made known to us what's happening now and also what the future holds. He hasn't kept us in the dark about his justice. He hasn't sort of kept it under a black cloak over there. I'm not going to let anybody know about it. It's there for us to read now. It's there for us to see that. It's there for us to be drawn to him. It's plainly before our eyes. What else has God done? In those prior chapters, he's also revealed to us the lamb. The lamb who was slain for our salvation. He hasn't kept back his one and only son. He sent him to save us from this judgment, his ultimate judgment. He's come to rescue us from the wrath to come, we're told in the, the Gospel of John. So do you want salvation from your sins? Do you want to receive the forgiveness that only God can give? Well, then you come to the lamb and you receive that. Don't be the people of verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9 who went through all that and still didn't repent. What a disastrous place to be in. Do you want to grow in confidence against your doubts? Well, then you come back to Revelation 8 and 9 and you see this glorious sovereign Lord working in perfect justice as a good and holy God. Not getting swallowed up in all the detail here that's taking place, because you can get confused by that, but get, get, see the bigger picture of what God's doing. That through the eyes of faith, he's keeping us, he's sustaining us, he's sealed ones with his spirit, carrying out his justice. It's a glorious picture of God. If we just open our eyes up to see what he's doing there, graciously warning us, and at the same time, drawing us to himself as we read that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you this morning that we come and gather around your word. We ask and pray now that, uh, Lord, you would work in our hearts as we think about Revelation 8 and 9. We think about the challenges that are there. Uh, we pray, Holy Spirit, please help us not to be swallowed up in the detail. Not with images of monsters or locusts or whatever we're seeing there in that sense, but to see what's happening there, which are your judgments coming upon a world that has rejected you walked away from you. God, it's my heart's desire that not one single person in my hearing today would do that, would reject you. I pray, Holy Spirit, work in hearts right now. Open up eyes, Lord. Open up ears. That they would see a glorious God who's rescued and saved us. Yes, a glorious God who will bring a right judgment to this world. Please, Lord, please work now, I pray, Holy Spirit. Lord, for those who have doubts, 
and we all have doubts from time to time. Let us come back and humbly read your word and let your spirit work through that word to dispel those doubts. God, even we would catch up with someone else to just share some of the challenges we're going through. Let us do that, Lord, I pray with humility and see those doubts uh, overcome by faith. Father, we thank you again for the book of Revelation and just uh, pray your blessing upon it now. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.